Welcome to lecture 21. Keep in mind that we are down to our last three lectures of the semester. Two this week, one next week, and then the final exam is a week from this Thursday. So I hope you are all studying and remember that that exam will be cumulative. Uh, I will send out an email reminder about this too. All right, so let's get back to what we were talking about. We we're talking about sympathetic effects on cardiac activity, and we went over how uh, increased norepinephrine release onto the SA node cells causes an increase in the pacemaker potential slope, and therefore it increases heart rate. And I then mentioned the effects of uh, norepinephrine on the Purkinje cells and the AV node cells and, and increasing the rate at which the depolarizing current can spread between cells. And so this overall, it reduces the PR interval through increased conduction through the AV node, and it also reduces the duration of the QRS complex. So the ventricles depolarize a little bit quicker as a result. Uh, but neither of the, if these effects actually influence cardiac output. Now let's get into the effects of norepinephrine and sympathetic activity on the cardiomyocytes themselves. So on the cardiomyocytes. And here the effect of norepinephrine is opposite of that of acetylcholine. So with greater norepinephrine release through greater sympathetic activity, this creates or enhances the calcium-induced calcium release. And it's just for the same reasons as acetylcholine inhibits this. So norepinephrine, by binding to the beta-1, remember these effects are mediated through the beta-1 receptors on the cardiomyocytes, uh, it leads to a greater number of L-type calcium channels which open during an action potential. So there's greater calcium influx across the T-tubules. And it also increases the sensitivity of the ranidine receptors to calcium. And so there's an overall greater number of calcium uh, ranidine receptors that are activated. And so that leads to this greater calcium-induced calcium release. So this is through increased number of L-type calcium channels. opening during action potential and increase number of ranidine receptors opening. So we have then a greater increase in the cytosolic calcium concentration when an action potential occurs. This leads to an increased number of the troponin um, proteins binding calcium because the calcium level is higher. 
This leads to an overall increased number of actin sites exposed. And therefore, an increase in power stroke cycling. Right, so more shortening, and so more force develops. Increase in force. Now, keep in mind that sympathetic neurons innervate both the atria and the ventricles. So the consequences for norepinephrine release on the atria is that it increases atrial force. Therefore, it increases active filling of the ventricles. And this will increase in diastolic volume. Now, that is the effect of increased sympathetic activity to the atria. And as a result of this, then the Frank-Starling law kicks in, right? There's greater length of the ventricular cardiomyocytes, and this will result in an increase in stroke volume. Now, for the ventricles, this leads to an increase in ventricular force. Right, and this is due to norepinephrine binding to the ventricular cardiomyocyte beta-1 receptors, and therefore an increase in stroke volume. And the effect on the ventricles, keep in mind, occurs independently of any change in, in diastolic volume. So the increase in stroke volume here in the ventricles, this is independent of a change in, in diastolic volume, meaning that the increase in force because of sympathetic activity to the ventricles will occur irrespective of what in diastolic volume is. Right? So it's going to enhance stroke volume. And because of that, this uh, sympathetic effects on the ventricles this is what's called uh, an increase in cardiac contractility. And that specifically refers to an increase in stroke volume that is independent of any change in end-diastolic volume. All right, so there are two things going on here. One is that sympathetic activity can enhance the force of contraction of the atria, which can bring about greater end diastolic volume and therefore greater stroke volume. But if you put that aside, the increased sympathetic activity to the ventricles alone will also increase stroke volume. And that occurs irrespective of a change in end diastolic volume. And that we call an increase in cardiac contractility. Now, 
an increase in contractility then affects the Frank Starling law, or the curve anyway. And let me bring in this figure from the book, which is this one. All right, so this is figure 923 on page 323. And it illustrates how greater sympathetic activity leads to an increase in stroke volume at any given end diastolic volume. All right, so it's showing, this figure is showing that the blue curve here is... Uh, the relationship between stroke volume and end diastolic volume with higher sympathetic activity. And that curve is upward displaced compared to the normal curve, which is green, where sympathetic activity is absent. That displacement of the curve upward is the increase in cardiac contractility. Right? Stroke volume goes up from B to C, as a result of that higher cardiac contractility. And that is, would occur at the same end diastolic volume. Overall then, so these are the autonomic effects by innervation of autonomic neurons on the heart. And overall, for increased sympathetic activity, then because of the effect of uh, sympathetic activity on the SA node, then we get an increase in heart rate. But we also get an increase in stroke volume, both due to greater contraction of the atria, affecting end diastolic volume, and greater activity of the ventricles directly leading to higher cardiac contractility. And therefore, both of these contribute to an overall increase in cardiac output with greater sympathetic activity. And here, uh, the increase in stroke volume contributes more so to the change in cardiac output uh, compared to what greater parasympathetic activity does to reducing cardiac output. Now, heart rate is still the more important contributor. I mean, this, the change in heart rate it becomes more pronounced than stroke volume, even with sympathetic activity. But there's a more equal contribution between both of these to increasing cardiac output with sympathetic activity. Now, the other thing I should note in terms of uh, sympathetic activity affecting cardiac contractility and stroke volume is that the increased in sympathetic activity to the ventricles will also affect the ejection fraction of the heart. So this is going to increase the ejection fraction of the heart.
Remember, the ejection fraction is stroke volume divided by the end diastolic volume. Now, if sympathetic activity to the ventricles goes up, let's say just by itself, increase sympathetic activity to the ventricles, then that's going to increase stroke volume uh, at the same end diastolic volume, and therefore it'll increase the ejection fraction. We said normally the ejection fraction is about 0.5 to 0.6, and with higher sympathetic activity, that ejection fraction can go up to 0.8. All right, now let's talk about, I said that autonomic effects to tissues other than the heart can also increase cardiac output or change cardiac output. autonomic innervation of the systemic veins and the adrenal glands can also affect cardiac output. Now, both of these tissues, the veins, systemic veins and the adrenal glands are, are only innervated by sympathetic neurons, not parasympathetic. So when we say autonomic, more specifically, we're talking about sympathetic activity or sympathetic innervation. Now, what effect does sympathetic activity have on the systemic veins? Increased norepinephrine release onto the veins. So. We'll talk about this a little bit later. The veins have smooth muscle in their walls, and this is also true for the systemic veins. This leads to an increase in the contraction of the smooth muscle. Within the systemic veins. And this is going to increase venous return. So it promotes greater venous return, which is then the major influence on the rate of filling. And so this is going to increase in diastolic volume in the heart and therefore increase stroke volume. So in this way, sympathetic activity to the veins can affect cardiac output. Now, the effect here of norepinephrine is mediated through binding to the alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. Smooth muscles in the vein have these alpha-1 adrenergic receptors, not, not beta-1 receptors. And secondly, then, we said the adrenal glands. So increased sympathetic activity to the adrenal glands. Uh, the adrenal glands release the hormone epinephrine primarily, 
So this leads to increased epinephrine release. Into the blood. So epinephrine is very similar to norepinephrine in terms of the effects that it has. So as epinephrine then cir circulates through the blood and gets back to the heart, epinephrine will bind to the same beta-1 adrenergic receptors that are in the SA node as well as the cardiomyocytes. And that has the same effect as higher sympathetic activity. So as epinephrine release goes up, this is going to increase heart rate through binding to the beta-1 receptors in the SA node. And it's also going to increase stroke volume through enhanced cardiac contractility as well as increased contraction of the atria. So sympathetic activity to the adrenal glands, it really augments direct sympathetic effects on the heart by uh, releasing epinephrine, which binds to those same beta-1 receptors. Now, I'll also mention that uh, the adrenal glands also increase the release of norepinephrine, which will also have the same effect. So a combination of both increased epinephrine release as well as norepinephrine release into the blood leads to this uh, augmented effect on the heart. Okay. I'm going to summarize this, but before I do, summarize all these effects on how cardiac output can be altered. Keep in mind that there are two important mechanisms uh, causing changes to the contraction force in the heart. And those mechanisms are the length tension relationship right the resting length of the ventricular cardiomyocytes is crucial to the force that it develops once they are stimulated and in fact this length tension relationship is quite a bit more important in the heart than it is in skeletal muscle as a mechanism compared to skeletal muscle, where we said length tension relationship is only of more minor importance in, in the force developed. In cardiac muscle, it's a major factor determining the force of contraction. And the other then is um, autonomic effects activity affecting the amount of SR calcium release. Which then affects the force of contraction 
Right, so autonomic activity, instead of initiating depolarization of the cardiomyocytes, it modifies uh, how much calcium comes out of the SR, which affects how many myosins can bind to actin and therefore affects the overall force developed. All right, so these are the two important mechanisms that can affect the force of contraction of cardiac muscle. Now, let's summarize the factors affecting cardiac output. And I'm going to summarize this in a diagram. So hopefully this will, you can picture all this together as, as we combine all this information. So cardiac output, we said, is effect or a function of heart rate and stroke volume. And both of these are subject to different physiological factors. Heart rate then is determined by the SA node activity and parasympathetic innervation Parasympathetic activity innervates the heart, uh, the SA node, and slows pacemaker activity. So we're going to put in red a negative sign here to indicate that this slows SA node activity and therefore will slow heart rate. Sympathetic activity also occurs through innervation of the SA node. Now we're going to use a green positive symbol here to indicate that it stimulates SA node pacemaker potential, which will then stimulate or increase heart rate. All right, antagonistic effects there. Now, sympathetic Neurons also innervate the ventricles. And this, we're going to put another positive sign here to indicate stimulation of ventricular contraction force. That increases cardiac contractility to increase stroke volume. So put another plus sign here. Now let's draw another arrow showing innervation of the atria, atrial cardiomyocytes. And we know that sympathetic activity here also stimulates contraction of the atria. This then will lead to greater active filling of the ventricles, and so it's going to enhance in diastolic volume. So we'll put another plus sign here to indicate stimulation of in diastolic volume. Now we know that if in diastolic volume goes up, then stroke volume is also going to go up, right? Because of the relationship between link tension. 
This arrow then represents the Frank-Starling law. So it really connects intrinsic control of cardiac output with the extrinsic control of cardiac output. Now, parasympathetic activity, parasympathetic neurons also innervate the atria. So we'll draw another arrow coming over here. But it has the opposite effect through acetylcholine release. So we'll put a negative sign here to indicate uh, reduced force of atrial contraction. And that will then reduce in diastolic volume, which would then reduce stroke volume. So those are autonomic effects on the heart that we talked about. But then we also talked about sympathetic effects on the veins. So let's draw another arrow here from the veins or sympathetic neurons innervating the systemic veins. And we're also going to put a positive sign, oops, green here to denote that this enhances contraction of the smooth muscle in the veins. And that's important because it affects venous return. So this is going to be enhancing or stimulating venous return. And that also contributes to stroke volume, uh, end diastolic volume, increasing end diastolic volume. Remember, venous return actually is more important in determining end diastolic volume because about 80% of the filling occurs through this process versus only 20% for the contraction of the atria. And then finally, we said sympathetic Neurons also innervate the adrenal glands. Which leads to an increase in epinephrine as well as norepinephrine release into the blood. And those hormones will have the same effects as sympathetic activity has on the atria, the ventricles, and the SA node. Uh, there's a few figures in the book here that summarize this. The main one here is this one. So I'll bring this one in. And this is figure 924 in the book. On page 324. Summary of the main sympathetic and parasympathetic effects on the heart, as well as, if you note here, they're also showing uh, the effects on the veins, the systemic veins, by enhancing venous return here. Now, what's not shown in this figure is the effects on the atrial contraction force, which contribute to end diastolic volume. And 
Uh, Sherwood's also not showing sympathetic effects on the adrenal glands. So this figure here is not complete compared to uh, what I just drew up here, right? The main difference is being she doesn't show the atria and she doesn't show the adrenal glands. Okay, so that ends chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 9 on cardiac physiology, and it takes us into chapter 10 on blood vessels and blood pressure. And really what this chapter is about is, is understanding the integrated function of the heart and the blood vessels together. So we're really talking about the body system level, understanding the cardiovascular system. After we talk about some of the properties of blood pressure and blood vessels. First thing we're going to start with is just uh, some simple ideas about uh, blood vessels. So let's talk about the layers. What are blood vessel, the walls of blood vessels actually composed of? Uh, table 10.1 in the book on page 339 is a summary of these layers. Now, what I'll focus on are uh, most blood vessels in the body have four distinct cell, cellular tissue layers to them. The first is, and I'll start from the innermost layer that's in contact with the blood, and then we'll, we'll work our way out. There's what's called the endothelial cell layer. These are the cells that are directly in contact with the blood. And it's a very, it's just a single cell layer um, uh, of tissue. And these cells are extremely thin. And underneath then the, these endothelial cells, and endothelial cells are basically a specialized type of epithelial uh, cell. Then underneath this, there's a layer of elastic connective tissue. And underneath the elastic connective tissue, there's typically a layer of smooth muscle. And then the outermost layer of a blood vessel, there's a layer, another connective tissue layer called collagen connective tissue. So these two connective tissue layers differ in that the, the fibroblast cells, which um, make up the connective tissue, they secrete, uh, some of them secrete the protein elastin, and those that do then lead to the formation of elastic connective tissue. Other types of connective tissue cells secrete the protein collagen. So they're just two different main proteins uh, that are 
form the extracellular matrix of these two connective tissues. Now, there's a big exception. Most cells, I said, or most blood vessels have these four layers, but the exception are the, the capillaries, which only have essentially the endothelial layer. Or the capillaries, which only have this layer. But all the other blood vessels then contain all four layers for the most part. Now, the thing I, I will point out about um, a big difference between arteries and veins as blood vessels is that if you look at the thickness of these outer three layers, the two connective tissue layers and the smooth muscle layers, those layers are much thicker if you sum the three layers together in the arteries than in the veins. All right, so that's a, a principal difference between the arteries and the veins is the thickness of these uh, three layers. Now I'm going to touch on this now, but then I'll come back to this in terms of talking about the significance of the difference in the, the, the thickness of these layers to the function of the cardiovascular system. But before I get to that, let's talk just more generally about how blood vessels are classified in the systemic circulation. Remember, the systemic circulation are all the blood vessels responsible for either uh, sending blood to all systemic tissues, which are basically all tissues in the body except the lungs, and then those blood vessels that are uh, bringing blood back to the right side of the heart, the right atrium. That's our systemic cir circulation. Now, we'll start with the arteries. Right, the arteries are those vessels that are um, transmitting or sending the blood to the systemic tissues from the heart. And the arteries in the systemic circulation are further subdivided into the aorta, the large arteries, The large arteries are those major arteries that branch off the aorta. And then small arteries, which then branch off the large arteries. And then finally, the smallest arteries are the arterioles. And to give you an idea of the size difference of these vessels, the aorta and... Um, the large arteries generally have a radius greater than about 2,000 microns. And I think the aorta is slight, has a radius that's slightly higher. The small arteries then have a radius 
between roughly 100 and 1,000 microns. And the arterioles have a radius of about 10 to 50 microns. And just to be clear here, when I refer to a small r, this refers to the radius of the blood vessel. Now, there's one aorta that comes off the left ventricle, and then there are multiple large arteries that then branch off the aorta, and then there are multiple small, small arteries which branch off each large artery, etc. So as we go from the aorta down to the arterioles, these vessels become more numerous. And smaller. Now, the aorta, the large arteries, and the small arteries, we're going to group those together as a single functional class of vessels. So these here, even though we can, you know, anatomically distinguish them based upon their size and their abundance, these are a functional single class of vessels. And we are going to call these the main function of these vessels is as a pressure reservoir. So they function collectively as the pressure reservoir within the cardiovascular system. And it's simply called that because this is where blood pressure is highest. Throughout the cardiovascular system. So hence we call that the, the pressure reservoir vessels, the aorta, large arteries, and small arteries. Now the arterioles have a different function. And in fact, they've got multiple crucial functions to them. And I'll list them here and then we'll go into them in more detail uh, a little bit later. So they have a role in helping establish arterial blood pressure. And the arterial blood pressure that we're going to be talking about is the mean arterial pressure. So I suppose I should put in here the mean arterial blood pressure, which we will abbreviate as MAP. They also have a role in helping regulate mean arterial blood pressure. They uh, have a really big role in determining the distribution of cardiac output to all the systemic tissues. In other words, uh, what percentage of cardiac output goes to what tissue?
they have a major role in uh, let me oops my time is up here they have a, a major role in controlling blood flow to the systemic tissues And finally, they, they dissipate what's called the pulse pressure, which we'll talk about. All right, so the arterioles are hugely important to the overall function of the cardiovascular system. All right, I'll end part one here, and we'll continue on. So continuing on with our lecture 21, part two, talking about the systemic um, blood vessel classification. So our second main group of blood vessels besides beyond the arteries then are the capillaries. And the capillaries are the smallest group of blood vessels in the circulation. They have a radius of about 3.5 to 4.0 microns. And here, really, the essential function of the capillaries is in nutrient and waste exchange. And this is the essential function of what the cardiovascular system does. It functions to allow the continued uh, exchange of nutrients and waste between the tissue interstitial fluid and the blood. All right, cells within the systemic tissues continually consume nutrients such as glucose, fatty acids, and so they need a continued supply of those nutrients, and that supply is through the continued flow of blood into the capillaries. So nutrients then move from the blood into the interstitial fluid, and the cells then within the interstitial fluid can consume those nutrients. And correspondingly, those cells will generate metabolic waste products that need to be removed ultimately from the body, but first of all, from the interstitial fluid. So those wastes then enter the blood from the interstitial fluid and then are uh, removed through the blood flowing to the kidneys to uh, be, for those waste products to be excreted in the urine. All right, so the capillaries are really at the essential business end of this nutrient and waste exchange process, which is crucial for the survival of all cells within the body. And as I said, the capillaries, uh, they are the thinnest blood vessels. They only have an endothelial layer. Uh, so they are the thinnest blood vessels. And that really is crucial for them functioning in this nutrient uh, process of nutrient and waste exchange.
So they are also the smallest, as I said, and they're the most numerous of all blood vessels in the systemic circulation. And then we have the veins, the systemic veins. So we're working our way around the systemic circulation from the aorta off the left ventricle around back to the right atrium. Capillaries then, they fuse to form uh, less numerous vessels called the venules. And these have a similar radius to the arterioles. They're about 10 to 30 microns in radius. And venules then fuse to form the small veins which become less numerous. Small veins fuse to form the large veins. And then we have the large veins fusing to form the vena cava, the superior and inferior vena cava. Small veins, similar radius, 100 to 1,000 microns. Uh, the large veins in vena cava, so the vena cava is the largest blood vessel in the body. It has a radius of about 5,000 microns. And large veins are somewhere on the order of a radius greater than 2,000 microns. Now, if we break down the functions of the different veins, the venules uh, have a role in nutrient and waste exchange, as with the capillary. Uh, but their contribution to this is less important than the capillaries. And then we are going to, again, we're going to group the small and large veins in the vena cava, vena cava as a single functional group. And the function here is as a volume reservoir. And these veins are called a volume reservoir, or they're said to function as a volume reservoir, because they hold approximately 60% of your entire blood volume. are found in the systemic veins. Now compare that with the systemic arteries, which hold only about 16% of your blood volume. Only 16% of the blood volume. So the veins hold a massively greater volume of blood compared to the systemic arteries. Right, and again, we'll come back to the importance of these pressure and volume reservoir vessels. Okay, so that's a survey of the different types of blood vessels. And I'll just bring in this figure here from the book as an illustration of this, although it's not the best illustration.
So this is figure 10-4. Move this down a little bit. On page 338, which illustrates these systemic circulation and the pulmonary circulation. Right up at the top, then, we have the pulmonary circulation shown. And then down at the bottom here, we have the systemic circulation. So they're showing the aorta coming off the left ventricle here. Right here's the left ventricle. And the aorta then branches to form the smaller, more numerous vessels. And Sherwood does not distinguish between the small and the large arteries here. So she just says smaller arteries branching off to supply uh, blood to different systemic tissues. And you can look at these as the larger, large arteries. Um, well, she does highlight the arterioles here as the next group, which then goes down to the capillaries here. And then the venules on the venous side. So there's, she hasn't distinguished between the small and the large arteries. But that's a basic figure you can look at in the book. All right, now this leads us to talking about blood pressure. And we want to discuss factors determining blood pressure. And this is within any blood vessel. All right, so two important factors determine blood pressure. And Sherwood talks about this on page 340. So the first of these factors is the volume of blood, which we'll abbreviate with a capital V for volume. The more volume of blood you put into a blood vessel, the greater the blood pressure will be. Therefore, we say that blood pressure with a capital P is directly proportional to blood volume. If you have not seen this symbol before, this is just a shorthand notation for is proportional to. Higher volume, higher pressure. More blood you put into a vessel, the higher the pressure is going to be. Now, the second important factor then is the compliance of the vessel wall. Compliance, we will abbreviate with a capital C for compliance. So compliance is a technical or scientific term that refers to the stiffness of the vessel. All right, all blood vessels ha 
have some ability to stretch to accommodate more blood if necessary, right? Blood vessels are not rigid tubes. They, they can stretch to accommodate more blood. And their ease with which they stretch is basically the compliance. Now, if a vessel has a high compliance, this means that it is a more stretchy vessel or less stiff or more stretchy, which means it can stretch to accommodate blood more easily. Conversely, if a vessel has a low compliance, this means that the vessel is more stiff. It's going to resist stretching to accommodate additional blood. The easier a blood vessel can stretch to accommodate blood, then the overall less pressure that blood vessel will have on it. So a high compliance vessel is associated with having a lower blood pressure. And the stiffer the vessel is, the more it resists being stretched to accommodate more blood, uh, the higher the pressure will be in that vessel. Therefore, pressure is inversely proportional to compliance. Right? High compliance gives you a low blood pressure. Low compliance gives you a higher blood pressure. So they're inversely proportional. Now, it turns out that the difference in the composition of the arteries and the veins has a major impact on their compliance. Said that the veins have an overall thinner connective tissue, smooth muscle layer, and that gives them a higher compliance. So veins have a characteristically higher compliance because of the composition of the wall of the veins. They can much more readily stretch to accommodate blood compared to the arteries, which have a far lower compliance. And this is not a trivial difference because the systemic veins have a compliance that's anywhere between five to 20 fold greater compliance compared to an artery. That's a massive difference in the stretchability of the veins versus the arteries. We can then take these two proportionalities, pressure is directly proportional to volume, pressure is inversely proportional to compliance, and now we can make an exact equality to say that blood pressure in any blood vessel is equal to the volume of blood contained within the vessel divided by the compliance of the vessel wall. All right, so this is a simple relationship here, which are determinants of pressure. Now, if there's a change in pressure, 
So we'll talk about a delta P, a change in pressure. That can be related to either a change in volume that occurs within that blood vessel, or it could be due to a change in compliance of the vessel. And we'll talk about instances where either one of these could occur to cause a change in pressure. Now, in the book, Sherwood does not specifically give you this equation. Pressure is volume divided by compliance. But you should know this. And I'm not quite sure why she doesn't give you this equation. But she talks about compliance on page 340 in the book and doesn't go into it in, in any further detail really beyond that. She also talks about volume on, on that same page. But let's, let's apply this equation to the principle of the pressure oscillations that occur within the systemic arteries over each cardiac cycle. And I'm going to specifically focus on the pressure reservoir vessels. The aorta, the large arteries, and the small arteries. So let's make a graph here. This is going to be a graph of blood pressure in millimeters of mercury against time. And the graph is going to look something like this. So this is one complete cycle, and then it repeats itself. So it goes up. All right, so this is what blood pressure looks like. Whether you were measuring this blood pressure in the aorta, any of the large arteries, or any of the small arteries, these oscillations look the same in, in any of those pressure reservoir vessels. And the oscillations in pressure run from approximately 80 millimeters of mercury on the low minimal end up to about 120 millimeters of mercury on the peak end. Now, the minimum pressure that occurs over each cardiac cycle is what's called the diastolic pressure. which we abbreviate as DP. And the maximum pressure that occurs 
over each cardiac cycle up here is what's called the systolic pressure. or SP, so systolic and diastolic pressure. Now let's highlight where ventricular systole occurs compared to these pressure oscillations. Ventricular systole begins down here at the minimum diastolic pressure, and it runs to this notch in the pressure trace over here. So this is ventricular systole. Occurs throughout here. This pressure notch here signifies um, or is caused by closure of the aortic valve. And that signifies the onset of ventricular diastole. So over here, then, we have ventricular diastole until the cycle starts again. There are, then, major pressure oscillations in all of these pressure reservoir vessels over each cardiac cycle. The question is, what is the underlying uh, process or mechanism which causes these pressure oscillations? Yes, those pressure oscillations are associated with changes in the activity of the ventricles, right, between ventricular systole and diastole, but more specifically, what is the reason for the change in pressure over each cardiac cycle. Changes in pressure over each cardiac cycle. Now this is where we're going to apply this equation, pressure is volume divided by compliance. And it's easiest to see this if we draw a simple diagram here. So we have the left ventricle, which is pumping blood out into the pressure reservoir vessels. So it's ejecting blood into the aorta, the large and small arteries. Right, here's, we're grouping all these together, this single functional group of vessels. During ventricular systole, then, we know that the heart, the ventricle, ejects a stroke volume worth of blood into these vessels. So stroke volume enters, and this occurs during ventricular systole. But there's also blood leaving that's flowing out of these vessels into the downstream arterioles and capillaries, which then goes to the capillaries here. And this would be our 
volume out that occurs. And the key thing is that during ventricular systole, the volume entering the pressure reservoir vessels is much greater than the volume leaving these vessels. The volume entering, we said, is the stroke volume, right? That's what enters during systole. And that exceeds the volume that is flowing out through the arterioles. The volume leaving is only approximately about one quarter the volume entering. If our normal stroke volume then is 70 milliliters, that's what's ejected in, and the volume leaving is only about one quarter that, then that means the volume leaving is about 18 milliliters. Therefore, over the course of ventricular systole, the aorta, large arteries, and small arteries are gaining a net volume of blood. So there's a net increase in blood volume in the pressure reservoir vessels. ventricular systole that amounts to roughly 52 milliliters. So it's approximately 52 mLs of a net increase in blood volume. Going back to our determinants of pressure, we said that pressure is volume divided by compliance, but I also mentioned that if there's a change in pressure, that this can be a function of a change in volume divided by the compliance. And this, what's this is what happens during ventricular systole. There's a net increase in volume. That reflects our change in volume. This value increases, and that leads to an increase in pressure. And that's, it's as simple as that. Blood pressure goes from a low of diastolic pressure to a high of systolic pressure because of the net increase in blood volume that occurs from here to here. Net increase in blood volume within the pressure reservoir vessels. When ventricular systole ends and the aortic valve closes, then pressure continually falls over the diastole. Now, if you think about it, well, okay, during diastole, the ventricle is not contracting. There's no blood being ejected into the pressure reservoir vessels. But there is blood that is continually leaving those vessels that is flowing out into the downstream arterioles and uh, capillaries. So from the closure of the aortic valve down 
to the minimum, this is where there is a net loss of blood volume over diastole. And the volume that's lost over diastole is the same as the net volume that's in, of increase over the course of systole. So about 52 milliliters is lost as it flows out of the pressure reservoir vessels during diastole. Diastolic and systolic pressure and these pressure oscillations then are simply a matter of changes in the volume of blood that occur over each cardiac cycle as the heart uh, cyclically contracts and relaxes. Simple as that. And that's what causes these pressure oscillations to give us systolic and diastolic pressure. Now, figure, bringing this figure from the book. Uh, this is figure 10-7 in the book. On page 342. All right, part A then is showing here the oscillations in... Uh, pressure in the pressure reservoir vessels over each cardiac cycle, highlighting the systolic pressure and the diastolic pressure. And the rest of this figure is then showing how those pressures can be measured with a sphygmomanometer to uh, occlude blood flow, which I'm not going to get into that because you guys are doing that, uh, learning about that more in the online labs. But let's talk uh, briefly about a few other important pressure terms that are worth mentioning. We talked about systolic pressure and diastolic pressure. The first of these is what's called the pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is simply the difference between the systolic and the diastolic pressure. So mathematically, pulse pressure is equal to the systolic pressure minus the diastolic pressure. So that's what we mean when we talk about a pulse pressure. And a pulse pressure can be used as an index of changes in stroke volume. So a pulse pressure can be indicative of uh, stroke volume, uh, particularly changes in pulse pressure can be indicative of, of changes in stroke volume. So if, if you think about this, if there's an increase in stroke volume because the ventricles contract more forcefully, that means that there's going to be an increase in the net volume gained in the pressure reservoir vessels, and therefore it's going to lead to an increase in systolic pressure, and therefore an increase in the pulse pressure.
And indeed, this is what happens during exercise, where stroke volume goes up. What happens is you see a remarkable increase in systolic pressure, but very little change in diastolic pressure, and so the pulse pressure uh, goes up quite substantially. Now, typically said that diastolic pressure is about 80 millimeters of mercury and systolic pressure is at around 120. So a typical pulse pressure is roughly around 40 millimeters of mercury pressure. Now, another pressure term is I've mentioned, and that is mean arterial pressure. which we'll talk a lot about in the time that we have left, MAP. As the name implies, this is the average pressure in the pressure reservoir vessels over many cardiac cycles. I mean, you could calculate it over a single cardiac cycle, but it's typically calculated over many cardiac cycles. And when you use a sphygmomanometer to measure systolic pressure and diastolic pressure, those measurements can be used then to calculate a mean arterial pressure. And there's two different ways it can be calculated. MAP is not the arithmetic mean, but it's two-thirds of the diastolic pressure plus one-third of the systolic pressure. And this is actually mathematically equivalent to the second way of calculating it, which is... Um, the diastolic pressure added with one-third of the pulse pressure. So either of these give you this, the same result because they're mathematically equivalent. So from estimates or from measurements of systolic and diastolic pressure, we can get an estimate of what the mean arterial pressure is. And these are not exact um, accurate measurement or, or accurate calculations of mean pressure, but they do give us a pretty good estimate of what mean arterial pressure is. If we take the standard 80 millimeters of mercury as the diastolic pressure and 120 as the systolic pressure, this gives us about 93 millimeter of mercury mean pressure. So mean arterial pressure is roughly around 90 millimeters of mercury. The mean arterial pressure is a critically regulated variable. So it is tightly regulated. About its physiological set point. There are important then regulatory systems in the body which serve to keep this mean arterial pressure tightly regulated. And that's a big part of what understanding cardiovascular function is about, is 
how the cardiovascular system adjusts itself in a way to regulate mean arterial pressure and then the role of the autonomic activity in this um, regulation of, of pressure. Now, I'll end it on this. Uh, teleologically, why is it important to regulate mean arterial pressure? It's regulated to uh, help maintain adequate blood flow to all tissues in the body. to all these systemic tissues. And we'll get into this a bit more next time.